Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So today is the first week of a four-week series called Sanctity. And the series titles go like this. The Sanctity of Life, The Sanctity of Gender, The Sanctity of Sexuality, and The Sanctity of Marriage. These are pretty culturally neutral issues. Can I get an amen? Amen. And I've been asked, Michael, why are you doing this? Seems like an unnecessary button to push. And and I've actually been thinking about that question quite a bit. I mean, I know why I want to do it, but really what at the core is, is driving me. And uh, I just want to share with you my heart in this candidly. And I truly um, want to help every person at the Village Church to think biblically and to feel biblically and to live biblically as it relates to these incredibly sensitive issues. And I broke it down even more, and uh, I, it just it came down to this. I really love you. And I desire you to think God's thoughts, to feel about God's people and about the world the way God feels, and to love as God would have you love. And, and that really at the core at the end of this is my desire. Just so you know, from my end, this doesn't make my life easy, by the way. Um, this isn't like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get up and, and preach on some really controversial subjects. And uh, I mean, some of you may get to the end of this and, and not like me. I hope your issue is with God's word, not with me personally. But, um, but there is an incredible amount of work that goes into sermon like this. They're a little bit different than usual. I had over 20 pages of single-space sermon notes to prepare to give to you, and I had to get rid of a lot of that because that would be like eight hours of preaching. And uh, so my, my goal is to condense so much into the most helpful, profitable um, content for you that will hopefully help you think biblically, feel biblically, and live biblically on these issues. Amen? So open up your notes with me, and you're going to see at the top of your notes over to the right, it says there are going to be some ground rules, and I want to go through this with you, make sure we are um, on the same page. And the first ground rule um, says this, would you be teachable? Somebody say no. Just kidding. Who's going to say, no, of course, I'm teachable, I'm humble, right? Yeah. Would you be teachable? And here's something you really have to believe if you're going to be teachable. You have to believe that you have not arrived on all issues and that your moral compass is not the pinnacle moral compass for all human history in all time. Um, you have to be in a place where you can step back and say, I still have something to learn. Or maybe the conclusions I've come to, there are better, more logical, more reasonable, or more biblical conclusions than the one I've come to. And my desire for each of us is that we would be just incredibly teachable, which requires a spirit of humility, genuinely. And so maybe you don't like an idea I have, and maybe you don't like a a translation or interpretation of God's word, and so you come to me and you say, hey, what about this? A teachable spirit goes both ways. I want to be teachable by you, um, and I want you to be teachable by me. And I think in the spirit of this, there can be incredible love and patience and um, I think brother and sisterhood that comes out of this sermon series. Um, And so that's the first thing. I want to give you an illustration to help you with this. You've heard me talk about lemmings. um, And if you have not heard me talk about lemmings, it's one of my favorite illustrations ever. Lemmings um, are actual real animals. And so they would find a whole bunch of dead lemmings at the bottom of a cliff. And so people surmise, why are all these dead lemmings at the bottom of this cliff? And so folklore emerged out of these lemmings. And here's what folklore basically um, turned into, is that lemmings would all um, follow each other, and there would be a leader who is leading everybody to their death, okay? And so the lemming would go over, and they were just mindless followers. They just went with the flow, and they ended up all um, going overboard off a cliff to their death. And this is honestly, as I have encountered much of culture, how many people think. We are mindless lemmings just taking in statements as truth and not challenging them to their very core. Now, if I were looked at most of you and said, do you want to be a cultural lemming? You would say, 
No, you'd like to be thoughtful, reasonable, rational, and that's what I want to ask you to do. I don't want you to just fight for an argument because it feels uh, right. I want you to fight for an argument because it is rational, it is logical, it is biblical, it actually makes sense, it jives with science and scripture, and I want you to use your brains. And what I found is, as I'm talking with people about this, there are these one-liners that people throw out, and they make no actual sense if you actually think about them, but they believe them so firmly. I just want to ask you, don't be a cultural lemming, because here's what happens about every 10 to 15 years in America. Um, the dominant cultural more ethic completely flips on its head. And so in 15 years from now, people are going to look at you, if you buy into the cultural ethic of today, and they're going to say, you're a bigot. They're going to say, you're closed-minded. They're going to say, you're judgmental, even though you right now are on the cutting edge of, we'll call it, liberal morals and ethics. And so every about 10 to 15 years, the whole thing flips on its head. And here's what I just want to say. I'm not interested in investing all of my moral conviction on something that is so unstable as a bunch of lemmings going off a cliff. And I'd much rather root my morals and foundation into something eternal. Now, I happen to have the privilege of believing in God and trusting in his word. And so the Bible has outlasted the cultural ups and downs. And so what I want to help you do is to think biblically, feel biblically, and live biblically. And that's the goal of all of this. So could we be teachable? Yes. Would you be sensitive? Now, in the back half of this sermon, we're going to be going deep into the issue of abortion. And here's what I want you to know. There are, and the first service was half the size of this, but there were a number of women in the first service who have had abortions. There are even more in this service. There are a number of men who have strongly pressured and encouraged um, women to have abortions against even despite what they really wanted. There are men in this room right now whose significant other or the mother of their child, apart from their permission and against their will, have killed their baby and grieve and think about that all the time. All over the spectrum are people in this room right now. And that's why this isn't just a, an issue that I want to just go at lightly and, and just make fun of. Like, I, really, this is so sensitive. I want to ask you to be sensitive because sometimes we can just verbally process out loud. We can say really ridiculous, um, unkind, uncaring, unthoughtful words. And right next to you, you may not know this, over the next four weeks is somebody who has gone through this, is dealing with it very intensely. There are gender-confused, sexually-confused um, people all around who come from all over the spectrum and are working hard to come to grips with this. And our goal is to breathe life and hope and peace and joy and healing into what is very broken. So I want to ask you, would you be sensitive? Your answer is yes. Thank you. And then finally, would you be submissive? I want to talk to Christians first. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't get to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like um, from the Bible. And our goal is throughout every single week, would you be submissive to the lordship of Jesus Christ in everything? in your view of human life, in your view of gender, in your view of sexuality, in your view of marriage, would you, not just in your ideas, but in your practice, submit all of these to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, your response at this point should be yes. Now, some of you are not Christians, and I'm so glad you're here, and Honestly, I don't want to fight with you. Um, I'd love to talk with you. That would be a blast. But um, here's what I want to ask you to do. Uh, if you're not a Christian, it is likely that people have created straw man arguments of what a Christian believes, is, does, thinks, etc. I found most of these straw man arguments to be complete and utter foolishness and misrepresentations. And every Christian said, amen. And my desire for you is very simple. I want to ask you um, two things. Would you be teachable and sensitive? Yes. But 
Um, take this opportunity to actually get to know a Christian and what we really think about these issues. Um, don't just paint us in a corner and say, you're a Christian, therefore you are. Empathize. Put yourself in our shoes. And if we truly love God more than anything else, and if we believe Jesus Christ is God, God in the flesh who has died on the cross for our sins, if we believe God's word is true in its context and to everything it speaks, what must that make us think or feel or live like? And put yourself in our shoes. And instead of demonizing or, or categorizing, empathize. And as um, Christians, we ask you all the time to put yourself in other people's shoes and, and try to understand from the perspective where they are coming from. And so the question is, would you be submissive if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Your answer is yes. And I know that's hard, but um, I think it's worth it in the end. One of the things I would love to encourage you to do is to take this recording and send it to a friend or family member or something of the sorts that you can begin to have discussions with. My goal is to create an environment in our discussions that you can actually um, have with other people that is kind and caring and puts the real issues on the table. I hope it's logical, it's rational, scientific. Most of all, I, I hope that it's biblical in the way we process all of these things. Amen? So open up your notes, and you'll see at the very top, the title of this is called Sanctity. I want to define this term for you and how it applies to the issues we're talking about. Seven-word definition. Sanctity means, very simply, if you have a pen, you can write this down. Set apart by God for holy purposes. Set apart by God for holy purposes. So we believe that God has created uh, life, gender, sexuality, and marriage. And he's created these to be set apart, special, distinct, unique, and to function a certain way. These are very important for him, and we're going to find these are very personal topics for God. Um, God did not all of a sudden say, oh, wait, we got it. Like, the church has to talk about this. When God inspired the word of God, he actually addressed all of these issues thousands of years before they became cultural hot topics. And the reason he did this is because these are deeply personal issues for God. I want you to think about how sensitive and emotional your relationship with your children is, and God is more emotionally invested in these subjects than you are your children. And we'll watch that come full circle here. And the, each, each sermon will be set up in three different ways. Topic number one or point number one is going to be creation. Who does God say that I am? Uh, the second part of every sermon will be fall, how has sin broken me? And the third part of every um, sermon will be redemption, how is Jesus healing my brokenness? So let's go to number one, creation. Who does God say that I am? And we'll see that in the book of Genesis, God describes who we really are. And in the book of Matthew, God declares who, really are, who we really are. So open up with me to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. It's a verse many of you are familiar with, but I want you to see it. I want you to read it, and as this unfolds, we will watch it play itself out. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible, chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Go to verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And at the end of the day, what I want to zero in on is this idea of the image of God. 
What is so unique and distinct about humanity that we are made in God's image? And why is this even relevant to the sanctity of life issue? And we're going to find this is incredibly, incredibly relevant. I want to show you four ways that we are made in the image of God. Um, People have confused this and talked about this from all different levels. But here's what being made in the image of God is. And in your notes under the first one, you can write the word our soul. It describes our soul. This is often subcategorized as the moral, spiritual, and intellectual capacity of humans. So we have this moral capacity of right and wrong. Now, I'm an animal lover, so don't get me wrong here. But I want to make a statement to you that animals are not moral beings like you and I are moral beings, okay? They are not like you and me in this way. When the lion devours the antelope and licks the blood off its paw as it drifts to the ground, he doesn't say, I wonder if that, I wonder what his kid's names are, you know? Like, he's not morally, like, in a moral quandary here. I mean, he's, and then he goes in for the intestines and says, oh, this is great. I wonder what his father's name is. Like, I wonder if he went to heaven or hell. Like, none of these issues are going through the lion's brain as he's devouring the antelope. And the reason is because he's not like us on a moral level, right? He's not struggling with the rightness and wrongness of these issues. Now, my response to that would be, okay, look, when I had a dog, right, and I would get mad at the dog, the dog would, like, be, like, shamed or, like, I'm so sorry, like, I thought my dog repented. And my um, ethics teacher said, no, that's called instinct. He's actually afraid of you. (laughs) That's actually what is going on here. And that's what they do under the leadership of the alpha. They're afraid. It's called instinct. It's not moral. He's not, my dog wasn't in some kind of moral quandary, like, I know I shouldn't have done that. I'm so sorry. um, (laughs) Animals don't regret. They don't wonder about the future. They don't speculate about eternity, which brings us to the spiritual component of animals. Um, They just don't simply have it. We are constantly wondering about the past. Why did I do that thing? What was driving me? I have so much regret and shame that we look to the future and say, where am I going? How am I going to get there? What is God like? We're thinking horizontally, vertically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. On every level, we are so complex on a spiritual level that we are totally distinct from the animal realm. And then finally, there's this intellectual aspect. We actually ponder our decisions and make them out of this moral and spiritual capacity that we have. Um, We are not animals. And I love animals, but we are distinct and different from them. And that's the first of four aspects of what it means to be made in the image of God. I am unique and distinct as a human being from all of the physical creation. All of it. The second thing it means is this, is that our bodies are actually created by God to reflect God's image and likeness. Um, So a couple things I want you to catch here. Like if we could see God somehow and we could personify him, um, somehow he thought the human body was the greatest personification of the image or the likeness or the stamp of God's very image. And there's a physical aspect to us that's different, but I want to draw this a little bit bigger than you, okay, bigger for you. Angels have a soul, but do they have a body? No. Animals have a body, but do they have a soul? No. And there's something so unique and so distinct about the human being that we are the convergence of the spiritual and the physical, and we come together, and we are unlike anything else in all of creation. It is absolutely a masterpiece. God cannot look at any animal, physically or spiritually, and say in any way, shape, or form, they resemble his image or his likeness. He cannot go to any angel and look at them and say, you know what, you represent my image and my likeness. But he stops at humans. He says, you are distinct and unique from all of creation. Theologians have called us the crown of God's creation. We, he stopped and he looks at us and he says, everything's good. You are very good. It's like looking in a mirror. The third thing, 
our responsibility is to graciously rule. Here's a a little one-liner for you that you can remember. We rule, everything else is ruled. We rule, everything else is ruled. And I want to uh, read for you from Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. And I'm going to put some emphasis on some words so you can catch the meaning here. God says, let them have dominion over. Are those ruling words? I would say yes. The fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock. And by the way, we'll just say everything and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them, and he said to them, make lots of babies, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Is that dominion ruling language? Absolutely. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We rule, everything else is ruled. Now, Sin obviously corrupts us to being pretty pathetic rulers. But before the fall, we would have ruled God's creation mercifully, graciously, purposely. We would have given life to creation. It would have been a profound thing to watch. But this is our God-given responsibility because guess who is the biggest ruler in all of human history? That's God, right? We're made in his image and likeness. And in his name, in his behalf, over his creation, he looks at Adam and Eve and says, rule, have dominion subdue, as I would rule lovingly and kindly and graciously and purposely, you do that for creation. In fact, we find that we are given the responsibility to rule the physical creation, but when it's all said and done, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 says this, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So catch this, that you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have dominion, will have dominion over the spiritual realm, have dominion over the earthly realm, but when it's all said and done, you will rule and reign over the angelic realm in behalf of God, and you will rule and reign over the earthly realm. That God has made you uniquely in his image and his likeness with a body, with a soul, and with a responsibility to rule. Number four, our value. Did Jesus die for angels? No. In fact, um, when the angels fell, there were no second chances. When one-third of the, of the angelic beings fell, God never, ever, ever decided, I'm going to go to the cross and pay for all the sins, and I'm going to give them another chance to come to me and repent. There was nothing of the sorts. Did Jesus go to the cross to die for the sins of the lion as he's chewing the antelope to pieces and says, I wish I wasn't doing this. I wish God made me different, but I have to. Like, did he pay for the shame and regret of the lion? No. That somehow when Jesus went to the cross, he had one thing in mind, and it was the sins of humanity that he bore on himself. And that Jesus did not go and try to reconcile the angelic realm or the earthly realm or animals back to himself because none of them were made in his image and likeness. Now, do you understand that when God makes something in his image and likeness, that he is particularly sensitive and protective about that thing? Now, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, here's the reality for you today. You are a body and a soul, complexly, miraculously converge in the image of God, given responsibility like God, and you have been assigned value because you are human and alive. It does not matter where you are, how old you are. It does not matter what nation you live in. It does not matter. As long as you're a human being, you have value. You have value. Now, I want to talk to Christians because in Matthew chapter 3, you can turn to Matthew 3, 16. Uh, The cards shift a little bit. 
And God is not just going to describe what it means to be made in the image of God. He's going to get really personal. So if you have trusted in Jesus, this is for you. God the Father is going to be assigning an identity to Jesus, his son. And when you and I come to Christ, God sees us as if he sees Christ. In fact, one of the metaphors in Scripture is that we are brothers and sisters with Jesus, and God is our universal Father. So that when we come to Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're not treated out of our sin, seen out of our sin. We are seen as if we are Jesus, flawless, because all of our sins have been paid for. And so we're going to look at what God the Father says to Jesus, his Son. And I want you to understand that these same words are for you and for me if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come and become a son of of God. And so here's the question I want to ask you before you get into this. Uh, When God thinks of you, what does he think? When God thinks of you, what do you think he thinks? What are some phrases he attaches to you? You are a disappointment. You have let me down. Um, You are frustrating when will you ever get it? Like, are these some of the words? Like, you need to go to church more. You, you, you're not enough. Like, why, do you, why are you always screwing up? Like, are these the words? I cannot believe how many Christians walk around thinking that the most true thing about us is our failures and our mess-ups, even after they understand the gospel and what Jesus did for us. And here's what I want to do. I, wanna, I want you to really, truly analyze how you think God thinks of you. And then what I want to do is blow that to shreds and actually tell you what God says he thinks of you. And so here's the passage of Scripture, Matthew 3, 16. God the Father says to Jesus, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this is is the line I think that many of you would have loved to hear from your earthly fathers. And some of you have never had the privilege to hear that. But guess who made your earthly father? God did, so his word trumps your dad's words. And so all the lies of your dad um, get trumped by the lies of your true heavenly father. And so here's what God would look at you and he would say. Number one, you are secure. Look at this word, my. It's very possessive. You are mine. I own you. Um, I love that. And uh, how many of us would love to have um, especially in those moments of weakness, somebody go to our defense and say, no, that's mine. You don't touch that. Like, I, I'm going to protect this. And that's what God is saying. He's like, he looks at Jesus and says, you're mine. You're, you are secure. Your identity is stable. Like, nothing's going to rock that. Number two, you are beloved. You are beloved. This is like a profoundly intimate term. And at the end of the day, I think here's what I want to help you understand this, is any of you who have had a son or a daughter And you know how you look at them and you say, that's mine, right? That possessiveness of them. And you look at them in that love that wells up in your heart, despite their frustration and their rebellion and their ridiculousness. But there's that like glow in your eye when you see your kid that like you don't have for anybody else, right? And you look at that and you look at like, I love that thing. So God was not, right, looking for an analogy to help you understand how he feels about you. God created the mother-father-child relationship, and he made us in his image with that experience in mind so that every mom and dad in this world would know without a shadow of a doubt this is but a glimpse of how much God loves you, wants you, desires you, how much he thinks of you, how protective he is for you, how secure you are in him. And so God steps back, and you, look at your, you want to look at your kids and say, you're beloved, you are secure, you are mine. Nothing can shake that identity. Okay, now times that by a gajillion and triple that, okay? and then add infinity, and you're kind of close to how God feels about his children in Jesus Christ. Now, 
That is awesome. Well, he's not done. Uh, number three, you are adopted, my beloved son. You are family. You are mine. You are my kid. Like, I own you. I am protective of you. I love you. And then finally, number four, and I think there's something about this last one that so few of us have personally experienced. Uh, it's this, you are delighted in. When, when God the Father looks at Jesus and says, you make me happy, I am proud of you. I am well-pleased with you. And how many kids would love to have your dad look at you and say, you make me happy. I delight in you. I just love you. You're secure. You're my son. You're my daughter. And there's this cry in our hearts to have somebody declare over us our true identity. And God trumps the idiocy of our moms and dads. He walks right into our soul and says, no, you are beloved. You are secure. You are adopted. You are delighted in, period. It's a non-negotiable. And so we look at the believer in Jesus Christ, and this is why I tell non-Christians, come to Jesus, okay? Because not only does he describe your identity, but he gets real personal. And when you come to Christ, he says, now you're family. Now you're in. Sin's forgiven. All, I see you as I see Jesus. You are beloved and you are secure. And let me tell you, if you actually believe this, will it change your life? You say yes? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Revolutionizes everything. And uh, last line, I just love this. God declares my truest identity. I am who God says I am, nothing less, nothing more. Despite what everybody in the world wants to tell me, first and foremost, I am made in the image of God because I've trusted in Christ now. I am secure. I am beloved. I am adopted. I am delighted in. And despite my ridiculousness, these ring true more than anything else. I am not the clothes I wear. I am not my age. I am not, first and foremost, the color of my skin. I am not a pastor. I am not a dad. I'm not a husband. First and foremost, I am God's son. I'm adopted, and I'm delighted in. That's first. What is true, if you're in Christ, is you are secure, beloved, adopted, and delighted in. Amen? Fall. How has sin broken me? Well, in the fall, the image of God is broken by sin and Satan, but it is not destroyed. Um, whether or not you have trusted in Christ or not, you are infinitely valuable before God. You have a responsibility before God to rule over the earth like he would in grace and kindness and truth. You are body and soul, uniquely the imprint of God, and yet we are thoroughly, thoroughly corrupted by sin. And we finished in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, where God the Father spoke Jesus' identity over him. And the very next verse starts chapter 4, and I want you to listen to this. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? He was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In verse 3, we have the devil's first three words to him, and they are fundamentally to challenge his identity. And the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. And we have three major threats to our truest identity. And I want to work through these. And the first one is Satan, who, I want you to catch this, is spirit, soul, but not body. Who has fallen and has no chance for redemption. Who hates you with everything he could possibly muster up because you are the image and likeness of God. He has rebelled against God, has rejected God. 
hates God, and the best way that he can go after God is to go after God's children or those made in his image and in his likeness. He is on a massive identity reassignment mission where he wants you to believe every single lie about you he possibly can because fundamentally he hates people because you are the image of God. He would look at you and say, you are not secure. You are unlovable. You don't belong. You are alone. You are not desirable. And you know what? These are not just words I pulled out of a hat. These are things that people say to themselves constantly, and they are regurgitating and reiterating in their mind and their soul lies that Satan has tricked them into believing. In fact, if they would only see that in Christ, they have everything they could ever possibly want The second threat that we have is, generally speaking, society. We've talked about this, but I want to just share with you a few lies that, if you just think about these for one second, are everywhere. And ask yourself if you've bought into any of them. Number one, perform and then earn your identity. Dress a certain way, whether it's scandalous or to fit with a certain group of people, and then become your identity. Sexually desire and fulfill your identity. And this is for pornography and prostitution and sex slavery. Make me happy and fulfill your identity. Have more stuff and achieve your identity. And I think the greatest sweeping lie that you just have to battle against if you're going to be a Christian is all identities are created equal so long as you are happy. And what I want to submit to you is that every other identity that someone can assign to us is tertiary or secondary or it's 500 spots down the line after, first and foremost, I am made in the image of God, body, soul, responsible, value. Second, if I've come to Christ, my identity has now been assigned by my Heavenly Father. I am secure, beloved, adopted, and delighted in. And no identity can take the place of that. Before anything else, I'm a child of God. And then I might do different things, but those things that I do and am a part of are not my identity. If those things crumble, I don't crumble. My identity is secure because God is secure and reliable. The third threat that we have is just our own sin, which honestly is... Uh, propels us to dehumanize and to devalue and to degrade other people out of our own insecurity, lack of identity. Um, And it is amazing that we don't just do it to other people, but we do it to ourselves. We are sometimes our own greatest, worst enemies. And I want to break up how um, sin and Satan and society do this to us. And there's two categories. You'll see them in your notes. And the first one are the devaluing and the degrading um, ways that our identity or our um, value or attack is on our the fact that we are image bearers. And the first one is bullying. Now, for some of you, you think it's funny that I put this in here because you've never been on the receiving end of this. But I'll tell you, the amount of depression and suicidal thoughts and early drug use because people have been, young kids and even adults have been um, isolated. And here's what happens in this. This is why I teach my kids. I don't care what anybody does to you. I don't care if they devalue you and degrade you and dehumanize you. You treat them out of their truest identity as an image bearer. And so what bullying basically does, it takes the value and dignity away from someone and assigns a false identity based on some perceived shortcoming. You are short. You are fat. You are different. And functionally, it comes down to this. You are unlovable because you're different. And it's a lie. 
And what happens to young kids, especially when they hear these lies, they obsess with this false identity. It becomes the thing they crave and the thing they want. Meanwhile, in Christ, they have security and love and family and a God who delights in them. Take this a step further. We have issues of racism and bigotry. They take value and dignity away from someone. They assign a false identity based on skin color or cultural identity. You are black. You are Indian. You are Mexican. This is now the most important part of you and defines you. And yet, as a Christian, we step back and say, before I am anything, I am a child of God. I am secure. I am beloved. I am adopted. I am delighted in. I might um, do different things and be a part of different cultures, but at the core of me, they don't identify me because when those things crumble, who crumbles with it? My identity is in them. I crumble with it. And so my identity is in the most secure person who could ever give it to me, which is my heavenly father. Pornography, prostitution, sex trade. I want you to think about this because many a man are addicted to pornography and this takes value and dignity away from someone and assigns a false identity based on sexual usefulness. The statement we are saying is you are a commodity. Your value is in your body not in your soul, you're an animal. I will rule over you and subdue you because you are now soulless. You are just a body useful for my pleasure. That is what porn, lust, prostitution, sex slavery does. It dehumanizes the person, takes away the soul aspect, and we treat them as if we're ruling over the animal kingdom and they're only useful for their bodies. And obviously you can see that God takes that deeply personal because that woman, despite what she may do to herself, or that man, despite what he may do to himself, is still an image bearer and is still valuable despite what we try to do to ourselves to degrade even sometimes our own selves. The second part of the category is into the destroying aspect, and this is uniquely personal for God. It's uniquely personal because we're made in the image of God, because this is very important. In in Genesis 9, chapter 6, Um, It says that uh, anybody who takes the life of another man, your life shall be taken. And the reason it gives is because you were made in the image of God. That there is something so personal about this that if you mess with a human, you're messing with God. That he takes this deeply personally. And so we have issues of suicide, murder, genocide, infanticide, euthanasia. But I want to pause. I'm going to go deep into the abortion side of things. And the reason I want to do that is because almost everyone in American culture will say to you, suicide is not the route you need to take. And they will tell you that murder, infanticide, and genocide are not good. There's a moral compass in America, by and large, that says these things are unacceptable. We don't do them. And yet when we get to the abortion issue, it's almost as if we suspend all logic and we say this, though, is acceptable. And I want to just help you understand a little bit about how I'm going to go about this. Um, And I know that this is weighty. I know that this is emotional. Like, I live on planet Earth. I get this. And so my, object, my objective is not to make you look back and to cast shame or guilt or condemnation on you. I have no desire to do that. The devil does enough of that. I don't want to be a part of that, okay? Um, although, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the things that happens is we look to the past, and we, because our identity is not in what we do or have done, we call it what it is. Uh, That's part of being a Christian is calling sin, sin, and then realizing that we're freed and washed and cleansed um, from the power of that sin. 
I don't, I'm not here to just to say, let's look back and make you feel bad. I hope you don't. Uh, I hope that God gives you such peace because of the cross that you are freed from that. Um, I do hope that as you look to the future about decisions you'll make or people you'll engage with, um, that you will think biblically about this issue and that you will understand the inherent and, inherent and intrinsic value of every life. And we're going to define the word life so we know exactly where that applies. My hope is that this blesses you, that it encourages you, that it draws you to Christ, exalts the forgiveness and grace and mercy of God, but also gives you clear categories to think. Sound good? You ready? You ready? You ready? We're good? All right, good. So as we define terms, as we give abortion a definition, there's something you need to be aware of, and that would be the dehumanization terminology that exists, that terms are given um, that are uh, scientific or ethically or morally neutral. And what happens is when we hear these terms, we start to believe the fact or the perceived fact that these are morally neutral terms. And so even the term abortion is so neutered. It's so weak. It's so um, amoral, right? And so purposely, these things have been done this way to desensitize us to thinking about these things. So we have words like zygote, embryo, fetus tissue, abortion. And at the end of the day, um, I don't think any of these take into consideration the full gravity and weight of what's actually happening here. And that's what I want to help you understand. And so as we do this, I want to submit a definition for you. If you don't agree with this definition, I want you to know I love you. And we can arm wrestle and mentally spar. I just would love that. And, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I want to think biblically, and then I want to help you see why I think this is um, a profoundly logical, reasonable, scientific, historical, and biblical definition. Abortion is the intentional killing of an unborn human being. Very simple. Nothing blow your mind. Abortion is the intentional killing of an unborn human being. And just so we know why this is so important to actually deal with this issue, uh, many of you have never heard the actual conservative stats in this issue, so I'd like to be the first to share them with you. So in America alone, every year, there's about 1.2 million abortions every year. That's just in America. It's estimated that um, in America, um, one in three women by the age of 45 will have an abortion. And if you think to yourself, that is unthinkable, it just goes to show you how many people are so ashamed of the subject that they will not talk about it. Okay? So before you say exaggerated statistic, maybe you need to step back and reevaluate your own perspective and the amount of shame and burden that people bear around this issue, which is why when we talk about this, I don't want to make light of it, but I also want to call it what it is and give you hope as you look to the future. Um, since Roe v. Wade, 56 million abortions have happened um, legally in the United States. Every year, <clears throat> worldwide, there are 45 million abortions, which means every second, 1.4 babies are killed somewhere in the world. Every second, 1.4. So by the end of this message, by the end of this service, thousands and thousands and thousands of kids will have been aborted somewhere in the world. Um, since 1980, since worldwide um, stats have been Recording much of this, it's estimated about 1.3 billion total abortions since 1980. That's a B with a billion with a B. Um, 1.4 per second. And so I think no matter how you slice this, if we're going to take such a committed route, um, if we're going to so aggressively execute one-seventh of our population, at least I want you to be able to look at me and defend it. I want you to look at me and logically, morally, reasonably, rationally, historically, scientifically, and as a pastor, I'd prefer you to be pretty biblical about it. If we're going to take such a deep, deep commitment to an issue, 
It's cute to say you're pro-choice, but now we're talking 1.3 billion since 1980, okay? So I don't want to hear pro-choice, pro-life. If you're going to defend any position, I want to know that if we're going to execute one-seventh of the world's population, we're going to be justified to do this. And if you can give me a good argument, that would be wonderful. But here's the, the logic of this, and what I want to do is take you on a five-part journey, and at the end I want to conclude with what the Bible does talk about this. Um, the pro-life argument is very simple, and the first point everybody agrees with, this is just logic and rational. Intentionally killing an innocent human being is a moral wrong. Do we agree? It's wrong to kill? Yeah, got that, good. The second one is where there's debate. Elective abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And the reason there's debate here is because of the word human being. So what government has done is they have given us a new category to think ethically and morally. And what they've done is they've separated the context or the idea of a human being can be defined now as we are a person and a human being. And so I might be a human being but not have personal rights. And we're going to watch this play itself out, and that is why you can look at somebody and say, you're a human being, but you don't have rights to life, because you're not a person. And you're not a person until a certain thing happens. Some people define personhood at conception. That would be typically the pro-life argument. Some people are going to define personhood, and they'll say that um, the soul enters the body at a certain point of gestation, and at that point, they become an image bearer because that's when the soul enters into the body. Um, some people would say that the soul enters into the body at eight weeks or 21 weeks or when there's actual consciousness in the developmental process or something of the sorts. At the end of the day, here's what we all have to say. Can anybody, through fact and science, absolutely, with clarity, tell me when the soul enters a body? No. So here's a question. I want you to imagine you get in your car. And it's a 50-50 chance that if you get in your car, all of your kids are going to die. In fact, 1.3 billion children will die. Do you get in your car? No, because when there are odds that high and the risk is so great, what does everything inside of us say to do? You take the path of reserve and caution. Now, the day that somebody can come to me and say, oh, it's not a human, God, it has no intrinsic value until 8 weeks old or 21 weeks old when the soul enters in the body, if somehow... You could prove that to me. I'll change my position. I will. Um, because if it's not a human and it's not a person until a certain point, then I... But the problem is that's never going to happen. So even if we never conclude when the soul enters into a body, we always, because we are kind, caring, compassionate people, take the path of reserve. Now, we're just speaking logically here. And what I don't want us to do is just buy hook, line, and sinker into a government's definition of personhood. The government is not God. The governments change their ideas constantly about what this means. And so I want to find something hopefully a little bit bigger than that. And I want to take the path of most caution. And I want to do a little exercise with you just to make my point. This is not about being emotional. Hear me, okay? This is a bit about being logical. So I want to show you some pictures. Let's show pictures of polar bears in the womb, okay? I look at this, and here's what I say. That's a pretty awesome picture, first of all. Um, second of all, what is that? It's a polar bear, right. So um, when did it become a polar bear? And everybody would say, in the womb. Great, next picture. Now there's been debate in the 9 a.m. service. Is this a cheetah or a leopard? The internet says leopard, I don't know. So if there's any like cheetah freaks in here, you can let me know. <laughs> but you look at that, and what do we look at that? We say that's a, well, a cheetah or a leopard. Like it's pretty clear it's one of the two. And anyways, somebody's Googling right now the difference between cheetah and leopard. Let me know after the service. All right, next one. Oh, do you know what that is? That's a dolphin. Isn't that cute? I think it's pretty amazing. Okay, keep going. 
tiger shark. And you look at that and you say, that's clearly a tiger shark. All right, now pause on this one. That's epic right there. I just forget about, again, these aren't about emotional points. This is just like, I, I just want to show you what your brain is doing, okay? Here's what your brain does. Your brain, because it's not being, right now, you're not having to deal with political agendas. You're not having to deal with what your friend thinks. You're not having to face your mom and dad or face your boyfriend or your wife or whatever else. You look at that and you go, oh, and if I looked at you and I said, if I killed that, what am I killing? What do you say? An elephant, right? Go to the next one. If I say to you I'm going to kill that, what am I killing? And that's where I want you to get rid of your politics, to get rid of all the people you need to please, and use your brain. When you look at that, that's what it is. Okay? It's not about emotion. It's about your brain. It's about doing what is most reasonable. And if, if I didn't know, I take the path of caution. And before I execute 1.3 billion of those, I step back and I say, I'm going to be reserved. I'm going to be reserved. Now that's logic. I want to keep going. You can take that. Tempted to leave it out, but then you'll be not listening to me the whole time because it's an amazing picture. So you can... I want to look at science. Science. This is not controversial. This is fact. So this isn't like a pro-life, pro-choice debate thing right now. I'm going to tell you these are like objective things that everybody agrees on. Okay. Um, science tells us conclusively that there are four characteristics common to all pre-born children. Number one, they are complete. From the moment of fertilization, the pre-born child is completely complete. I like the redundancy of that word. And has all the information that it needs to be there. It simply needs time to grow. Now, does... Um, Place and development determine your humanity. No. Is a toddler more human than an adolescent or less human? No. Are you more human than a child? No. Because logically, scientifically even, we understand that, um, that development, uh, we're all over the place. Number two, yeah, teenagers. Oh, that's a different story. No. Uh, <clears throat> we're unique. The preborn child is unique and genetically distinct from his or her, her Mother, the preborn child is not a part of the mother, but a unique entity inside of it. Now, if I look at you and say, you say, well, it's my body. But here's the problem. It has its own DNA and its own consciousness. As early as eight weeks, if you prick it, it recoils in pain, right? We cannot just step back and say, it's like me saying and making a defense of, well, there's a ringworm in my body. It's me. No, you are not the ringworm, okay? It is actually separate and distinct with a unique DNA and separate consciousness from you. And we step back and we look at a human being. We step back and we say, it is not my body alone. It's another human being with separate DNA. And at the end of the day, science is going to tell us that it is completely unique genetically and separate from its mother. It's living. The laws of biology tell us that every preborn child is alive because it's growing, developing, undergoing metabolism, and responding to stimuli. And finally, the law of biogenesis. It's human. What do elephants beget? What do dolphins beget? What do bears beget? And humans beget? Humans. Now, if we're suspending all of our political agendas, and we just stop, and we say, what is it? We will always step back and say, it's a human. And then the government wants to come in, and they want to say, ah, but it's not a person. If you want to make that distinction, fine, but I'm not going to suspend logic and rationality and execute a child because you call it a human being, but not a person. That doesn't make sense to me, but so let's go to reason. Does size determine our humanity? Your answer is no. Does the level of development determine our humanity? No. Does where I am, my environment, determine my humanity? 
Am I less human because I'm in one place as opposed to another? No. Does my degree of dependency determine my humanity? Is my infant less human because it has more dependence? Are older people who are fully dependent, um, are they less human? And the answer is obviously no. We are fully human, made in the image of God, body and soul, profound responsibility, and infinite value. And we declare that over every human being. I want to read this part for you under history and and this talks about the danger of what happens when personhood in government is separated from humanity. If someone ever suggests to you that some human beings are not, quote, persons, history is your ally here. Because history repeatedly demonstrates that the law will only separate personhood from humanity for nefarious ends. I love that word. Consider these historical examples. 1858, Virginia Supreme Court, quote, In the eyes of the law, the slave is not a person. 1881, American Law Review. An Indian is not a person within the meaning of the Constitution. 1928, Supreme Court of Canada. The meaning of, quote, qualified persons does not include women. Sorry, ladies. 1936, German Supreme Court. The Reichergard itself refused to recognize Jews as, quote, persons in the legal sense. And we know what happened with abortion in America. And then it ends with this. In every case, the slave, the the Indian... The woman, the Jew, and the unborn child, science and common sense tell us that they are human. Only the law had the chilling audacity to strip these groups of personhood. And if someone is a living human being, then they are a person. Doesn't that make sense? If you're a living human being equals person. And then here's what it says. A separation between these two can only ever lead to evil. So, if you don't believe the Bible, I would ask you to use your mind and the logic that God has given you. But I want to open up Scripture with you and go to Psalm 139. As you're turning there, we're starting in verse 7. It says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Idea God is everywhere, everywhere. You can't get away from him. You can run, you can hide, but he's everywhere. It's kind of scary. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Now, here's the question I want to ask. Where in this author's mind 3,000 years ago is the darkest, most mysterious place in all of the world? The womb of a mother. And so his brain goes right there and listen to what he does. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So here's the question. Where is God? He's in the womb. And what's God doing? Forming a baby. And then the next question is, what should be our response to this? Here's what he says. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Catch this. My soul knows it very well. We have to obliterate our conscience to get to a place where we have to take God out of the picture of the development of a baby. There should be something so amazing about this that it evokes worship in us. Verse 15, my frame, it was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Um, So we are compared here to God's artwork. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there was not one of them. Does God have a plan for every unborn life? And the answer is yes. And the scripture speaks so bluntly and blatantly to this. It's powerful. The last one I want to go with you is Exodus 21, chapter, verses 22 to 25. And here what, here what happens is God is making a law, and the law reveals God's values. And so um, what happens is the question when two people fight and a baby is hurt or killed inside the mother's womb, because apparently this would happen. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. It's amazing we have to like, actually make laws for this kind of stuff, but... As the woman and the husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But, verse 23, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life. And what is God communicating when he says this? That that is life, and that taking the life of that unborn child is as taking anyone else's life. And God is declaring it, and he's showing you what he values. You don't have to like what the Bible says, and, and this is more for your information to understand why Christians take the position that we do. We say that life starts at conception or in the womb. And we say that God is there doing all this stuff, so we don't mess with it because it's God's work, and they're made in the image of God. But even if you don't agree with that, science, logic, reason, history all tell us that this is... And so here's God's train of thought. Murdering humans, bad. Unborn children are humans. Murdering unborn children, bad. Make sense? And logic plus science plus reason plus history plus the Bible, when all of them converge, we just step back and say, good idea. I think in 30 to 40 years, my grandkids are going to look at me and they're going to say, did you participate in that? Um, they're going to look at us and they're going to say, this was the most barbaric age in human history. Because as science is getting more and more clear, what we're actually watching is the millennial generation and younger are actually changing their viewpoints on this, that there's a cultural tur tide turning. And the reason they're doing that is because the science is so overwhelming that you can now no longer just see a fuzzy ultrasound. You're actually seeing organs and the details and faces and wrinkles and fingerprints and all this stuff that our kids, our grandkids are going to look at us and say, what did you do? What did you do? How did you even like, permit this? Did you preach on this, Dad? Grandpa? Like, did you stand up for this? Like, it's so logical. And this is the tide that our culture is turning, and I'm so grateful that it's turning in a positive direction here because science is so overwhelming that this is what you are. You are a human being from conception till death. That's what you are. I want to close with a few just questions and then um, an encouragement on redemption. You guys still have a couple minutes, and I went long, but this is worth it. Questions that you'll have to deal with. You cannot make people like your answers who are not Christian. I will not make that easier for you. Um, it's not your job to always make them like you, although we want to be gracious and skillful. The question I get often is, what about rape and incest? And it's a great, it's a wonderful question. It's a horrendous situation that I would wish upon no human being ever, 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 ever. But there's a logical question. I want to take the emotion out of, the, out of it, and I want to ask you a logical, moral question. When is it ever okay to harm another person because you've been harmed? Because if you, you can only do this if you buy the government's definition of human. That's it. You have to separate human from person. Humanity from person. But take those distinctives aside. Just put them away because they're meaningless. Whenever, ever, is it okay to inflict murder when you've been personally harmed? To accumulate evil on top of evil. That's the hard question of this. And it doesn't mitigate, it doesn't make anything easy. That's not the point. Um, but we are stuck in a moral quandary because one evil 
do we take this and do we accumulate more evil on top of it? Uh, it's, it's an infinitely difficult question, but you have to deal with it, and it's not easy. I don't, ma- don't want to try to make it easy. Does a woman have a right over her own body? In the eyes of the government, no, actually. If you want to go government on us, you try to go smoke and crack, see what the government does to you. Go try prostituting yourself. You don't actually have autonomy under our legal system over your body. And this season, the government has given you autonomy over this issue. But you do not have rights over your own body. The bigger question, though, is I don't really care what the government says. I want to know what does God say. And I would look at everybody, and I'll just say this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't own your body. It's God's body. So my question is, no matter what terrible or happy or joyful or evil circumstance I'm in, is, Jesus, this is your vessel. This is yours. What do you want me to do, and what do you tell me to do? I love this one. This is actually one of my favorite questions. Where do aborted babies go when they die? And I give a totally confident, excited answer to this one. I think they go to heaven. I think we're going to see 1.3 plus billion babies in heaven. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. I'm not just saying that because it's cute and makes me feel good and puts a good little nice cap on, you know, on this message. Um, you go to the Torah, and uh, the Israelites are being fools in the wilderness, and God does not hold people 20 and under um, responsible for their ridiculous behavior. But there's actually in Scripture this interesting sense in which there are some things that God says you're too young to actually be fully held accountable to the, to the greatest extent. You see David, he uh, loses his child, and he says with confidence, I will see this child again. You see, Jesus has just a uniquely special, profound protection over children because they are helpless, they are poor, they are powerless, they don't have anything going for them. Matthew 18 actually even says that God has assigned angels to children, that there are special angels set apart just for kids. And I'm like, I look at the whole trajectory of Scripture and I think to myself, I think we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be blown away by the grace and the mercy of God. And we're going to expect that there's going to be a bunch of people just like you and me, if not the majority of it may be populated with, the, with um, kids who have been killed in the womb or died a young death. Um, how many little kids have died? How many miscarriages have happened? I think heaven will be God's like, greatest gift where the Lord just says, look what I've done. It might, you, what you intended for evil, God is orchestrating and he is doing these beautiful, huge things. I'm excited to see that. We're going to close. We're going to look at this passage of scripture. It'll be very quick. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So just so you know, this list includes all of us, okay? It's not picking on anybody. It just includes everybody. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Anybody not in that list? If you raise your hand, you're a liar. We need to talk about other things, okay? It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. I love this. You come to Christ, and he gives you this new identity. You are secure, beloved, adopted, delighted in. You are washed. All the stains that you wore, all of the the dirt on your life, he cleansed you so that they no longer identify you. They are not a part of you anymore. You are 100% forgiven. They do not um, hold any power over you any longer. 100%. You were sanctified. You were set apart. God didn't just wash you clean, but he said, be a bright and shining light. I'm going to make you unique and distinct. I'm going to put you as a bright light. I'm going to show people my glory and my majesty and my mercy and my grace. Look what I did in your life. Now show other people that. 
And he says that you were justified, 100%, absolutely, totally forgiven, nothing left over, no residue of sin, no condemnation over the past. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. And so here's the, here's the offer. Maybe whether it's abortion or some other atrocity or some other struggle or deep sin that you bear so much shame and guilt over, Jesus looks at you and says, there is no other way out. But if you come through me, if you trust in me, if you stop trying to work for your salvation and put your faith in me, I will wash you once and for all. I will sanctify you. I will set you apart. I will justify you. I will give you what no other human could do. I will assign to you an identity that is unshaken. It will change your life from here on out. And those of us who are Christians and we are struggling, we think God still sees us out of our past sin, I want to look at you and say, you are secure, beloved. You are family. You are adopted. You are delighted in. God loves you. And then in that spirit that I want to close this and just say, God is a redeemer. Jesus is healing and has healed our brokenness. And when we get to heaven, we are going to be blown away how the God of this universe deals with such grace and mercy and justice, our sin and rebellion. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together and pray. Father, I don't take for granted for one second the weight of the subject matter. It's so hard for me to hold an emotion about it because it's just um, so intense. But God, I, I just simply pray um, that you would help us to think your thoughts. Lord, that we would feel um, compassion on anyone struggling through these issues. Lord, that our hearts would break over the gravity and the weight of this. Lord, that we would live in a way that is filled with grace and skill and mercy and truth. God, that we would be known as people who are so for humans of all kinds, of all colors, of all backgrounds. That we have such a high view and despite what people may do to us, we will never treat them out of their false identity. We will treat them out of their truest identity that they're made in the image of God, body and soul, responsible and valuable before you. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.